we had one attendant who is 12 years old and she came to every single one but today she's in New York City because she organized her school over in Stone Ridge to go down to New York City and she was really upset that she couldn't be here but she's been to every single one and it's been fascinating to see her ask right. these questions. I can't wait to point out the fact that she makes my daughter look like such a loser. I'll, I'll tell my daughter. Say, <laughs> <laughs> Matreya. Matreya is obviously quite impressive, Hedda. What are you doing? Yeah, what are you doing? Yeah. Are we, are we on? Oh, oh, that's good. That'd be good. That'd be great. Oh, sorry, Hedda. Didn't know that was being recorded. How will you be a politician if you don't know about the hot mics? No, I, I, I do, but, I, but I, I, I intentionally take every opportunity to take a little bit of a swipe back on my daughter, considering how she treats me. Um, so. Did you hear John Stewart's daughter just takes pictures of his bald spot when he falls asleep and then posts them around the house? <laughs> and way, makes collages now see I'm glad you I'm glad you told me that story because that makes my daughter look like an angel see <laughs> that's such a great wonderful comparison now. welcome back to Spotlight 19 Justin Tracy here this week our last and final tiny town hall with congressional candidate Brian Flynn this was recorded back on March 24th right after the March for Our Lives Sarja actually talked about the Tiny Town Hall series to Radio Kingston's Hilary Harvey on our show, The Source. That was last week. You can find that interview in the archive at radiokingston.org. Before we begin, just another reminder about the Black Women's March planned for April 7, 2018, over the Tabasi Bridge. You can find out more about supporting this march at callblackline.com, C-A-L-L, blackline.com. Although Spotlight 19 won't be able to be there, we will be contributing to the bail fund, which will be used in case anyone is arrested. We've been monitoring the hashtag pack the court for Cali situation and telling you about how the activist and Rise Up Kingston founder Cali Jane was issued a summons by 721 Media, the owner of the building where John Fazzo has offices. On March 27th, the judge decided that if Cali does not trespass on the 721 property in the next six months, the charges will be dropped. While this might sound like a win, it just highlights how disruptive the criminal justice system can be on people's lives since Cali had to appear twice in court to get this decision. In fact, we often talk about Erin Broadhead, who has another court appearance as we are recording this show. There are a number of other actions planned to pack the court for Kingston residents who have been unfairly targeted, and you can find out more about them on the Spotlight 19 forward slash Rise Up Kingston Facebook pages. Another event to keep in mind, the next several Fazer Fridays in Kingston will be themed, with the April 6th protest being union-themed. Frazzo has certainly been voting to diminish the rights of workers and often says that high call volume at his offices are because unions are organizing against him. His record on unions is terrible, and in 2006 he proposed eliminating the ability of unions to negotiate for their public pensions. We hope you will be out for Fazer Friday in Kingston at 721 Broadway at noon this Friday to support our unions and protest Fazo's stance on them.
On to John Fazzo. He's been on a spring recess over the past two weeks and continues to have his beloved blank daily schedule page. He has made some appearances in the district, but they are rarely, if ever, announced in advance. He was not at the March for Our Lives and will not be holding a town hall as called for by activist David Hogg, a parkland survivor. Fazzo did appear on WAMC Vox Pop this week, the Albany NPR affiliate's call-in show. Saja was lucky enough to get on the line and ask Fazzo if he'd continue to accept money from the Mercer family, which was a founder of Cambridge Analytica, the company that stole Facebook data to assist Republican candidates, including President Trump. Here's the audio. Sasha and Hurley. All right, Sasha and Hurley, go ahead. Hello. Uh, thank you, Congressman Fazzo. We've spoken before for taking my call. Uh, oh, my uh, you, of- are, you are the, the radio uh, uh, blogger. Uh, yeah, we have a podcast. Yeah, so a podcast. My question kind of, um, and you've uh, taken the time to be on our show, and we appreciate that. Um, and my question is a jumping-off point. In light of Mr. Mercer's ties to Cambridge Analytica that have been well-reported on, will you commit to not taking any more money from the Mercer's who have supported these companies that have actually stolen Americans' actual personal data? That's what came out last week. Will you commit to not taking uh, future donations from them? Well, I hear Sasha, um, and thank you, by the way, for being supportive of my efforts uh, relating to uh, the preemption of the scaffold law on federally funded projects. I have to get that in there. Um, the uh, I believe that uh, the story I, that came out about Cambridge Analytica, I think, was uh, highly charged. I'm not sure if it's if it's accurate, but candidly, the Obama campaign in 2012. Uh, if you look at a book called The Victory Lab, you will find out that they did many of the things that uh, these folks from Cambridge Analytica are being accused of they back in 2012. Stole, uh, they never used stolen data. This was data that was uh, called from people without their knowledge, and that is well documented. Well, I actually, I think that uh, the vast majority of data that uh, commercial advertisers use uh, uh, via Facebook is called for them, called from them without their knowledge, or they are simply uh, not checking the right boxes in terms of the data. I frankly am very troubled by the use of uh, the social media data that uh, firms uh, like Facebook acquire and use and then sell. I mean, you uh, go online and you uh, search a for a pair of shoes that you want to buy, and then magically within uh, a few hours, you're getting advertisements from uh, shoe shoe sellers uh, wanting to sell you shoes. I think that the whole this whole phenomenon is uh, one that really bears scrutiny. And uh, I'm troubled by what I read, but I wasn't frankly very surprised because if you looked at the uh, that book, Victory Lab, which documented how the Obama campaign very smartly used uh, data uh, back in 2012, you found that if you and I were Facebook friends and uh, you were for President Obama and I was undecided, uh, they sent you a message saying, contact me to persuade me to be for President Obama. And this is all because of uh, of, of this big data and the use of big data in campaigns. And, and I think it does raise some questions as to whether or not uh, there should be regulation of it. Fazzo responded by not answering the question and instead saying that Obama's use of Facebook data was equally as concerning to him. Here's the thing. 
Cambridge Analytica used a Facebook app to trick people. The app told Facebook users that they would be getting a personality analysis for an academic study. The app creator then took the data and provided it to Cambridge Analytica, which used it to meddle in political elections, without permission from the Facebook user to do so. This is stealing. Now, when Barack Obama's campaign used Facebook data, there was never any stealing. The people who were contacted using Facebook in the Obama campaign were told that they were being targeted on behalf of a political campaign. The user whose data was stolen by Cambridge Analytica were never told that their data would be used for any political purpose. When Fazo doesn't answer whether he'll continue to accept Mercer money, we know that he will be. When he doesn't denounce Cambridge Analytica and instead does the whole blame Obama routine, we voters need to be beware. Bazo might use these tactics in November and we need to educate ourselves and neighbors against him. New candidate alert. We have a potential candidate who will be seeking the Green Party line, Stephen Greenfield. We will be monitoring the progress of his efforts to petition and will interview him should he get on the ballot. We now have 10 candidates seeking to challenge John Faso in November. Number one. In 1997, Faso was one of the only 11 Assembly members to vote against an increase in the minimum wage from $4.25 to $5.15. Number two. In that same year, he proposed a budget that increased tuition at state schools for college students by $400. Number three. In 1997, he also sponsored a bill in the Assembly that funded abstinence-only programs to prevent out-of-wedlock births and he said soaring rates of illegitimacy have contributed to the unfortunate cycle of welfare dependency in New York State. We know that abstinence of sex education only leads to higher rates of teen pregnancy, however. Number four. In 1997, John Faso also voted against a bill to protect employees from the health risks of breathing toxic air in the workplace by requiring adequate ventilation systems and providing for avenues of recourse for affected employees. Number 5. At the end of 1997, Faso supported Pataki's budget, which was cutting millions of dollars from health care for New Yorkers, including funding for children to receive dental care. And now we move to our Tiny Town Hall series, featuring Democratic Congressional Candidate Brian Flynn, here on Spotlight 19. So I'm going to ask Matreya Motel's question. We just talked a little bit about her off mic. Her first question is always about what will you do in Congress about this issue with guns and how will you you actually make sure something gets done when nothing has for so many years and we've seen shooting after shooting and Matreya is someone who has grown up with having active shooter drills. So that's that's usually her first question. And it's said much nicer than I said. Right. Well, Matreya, thank you so much for your question. I know you couldn't be here today, but thank you for everything you're doing. And the reason why you can't be here is because you're leading your school 
uh, in the march in New York City, and we really appreciate that. Uh, I want to tell you that you're right. We haven't done enough, uh, and it is um, sad that you and your friends and all the students throughout the country had to finally inspire us to do what we should have done uh, decades ago, which is trying to finally take seriously um, the threat of uh, gun violence in our society. And what's interesting is this is, and this conversation is really important, this is not um, at all about the Second Amendment. You can support the Second Amendment and reduce gun violence at the same time. And to do otherwise is what the gun lobby and the NRA uh, have been arguing for years, and it's about time we stand up to that. And, uh, Matreya, I can tell you, my, my daughter is uh, your age, and um, I worry about her safety every day. She's been going through those drills and just did yesterday. Uh, and it, it shouldn't have to be that way. So I also have a little bit of experience in this area. Um, when I was uh, 19 years old, uh, my brother was killed by terrorists. But when that happened, we did something about it. We actually lobbied Congress and changed the law so that we had airline safety so that wouldn't happen to other families. That's what we have to do now. And that's what I've always done. So I can tell you that we're going to not let this moment pass. Because you know what? The overwhelming majority of people in this country want to reduce gun violence. The overwhelming majority of people in this country want to take out um, the loopholes that prevent that allow people to get guns. They want to have universal background checks. And they want to get weapons of war out of the hands of civilians and people who shouldn't have them. There is overwhelming support for this. And we have to make gun owners a part of it. We don't actually make them the enemy. We make them a part of the solution. And that's how we'll make us all safer. And it goes beyond just those, those policies. It's also about enabling us to get information on how we can reduce gun violence and really appealing the Dickey Amendment, which prevents us from getting information. So I have been there before, and we will not stop until we change this. Great. Thank you. And her second question has always been, how do you think you can beat John Faso? Thank you, Matreya. It's a great question. Um, I know I'm the right candidate to beat John Faso because I'm the only candidate of all these great people that are running. I'm the only candidate who's been advocating for Medicare for All since 2004. And when you consider the fact that John Faso voted to take away our health care, that's going to be a critical distinction in this election. I'm also the only candidate who's created hundreds of blue-collar American jobs, and I love that as a contrast to a career politician and lobbyist like John Faso. I'm also the only candidate who's been to Washington and gotten legislation passed. And when you're going up against John Faso, you better make sure that you have the experience to match him, and I actually have more experience than he does in Washington. I'm also a candidate who's got a plan for moving us forward, a vision. It's not just enough to fight against something, we have to fight for something again. We have to actually create an America that works for all of us, not just the few. And that's important because I think a lot of us just think about what we can do to fight against. We need a, a leader and a representative who helps us fight for something. Um, I would also say, based on what our challenge is right here, I've got the track record that can ensure that we energize the base. I've been a lifelong progressive Democrat. I've fought for progressive values, so I can engage and energize the base of our party to make sure they come out. But I also can connect with swing voters and independents as someone who's been a job creator and a small business owner. And last and perhaps most importantly, who I am and what I've always done is that when I see something, I do something. And right now in this country, that's what we need. 
there are some seriously wrong things about this country, and we need somebody who's got the experience and track record and the fortitude to take on John Fassel and the dark forces behind him and ensure that we win this election. Matreya, thanks so much for everything that you're doing. Uh, I'm nervous. So to those of you listening at home, Lori has sat down to ask me a question, and Lori has a book of paper with her <laughs> and research that she's been putting together. So this might take a while, so settle in. There we go. What I thought I would do is um, I actually spent the last 48 hours going through the interviews that you have had at Spotlight 19 and looking through your website, as well as just looking through press releases um, and what's out in the news. And uh, one of my favorite sites is opensecrets.org. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to drill down on some money things sure. and things like that. Great. So, But my real big question, my most important question, one that's very core to me, is about morality and civil behavior. And we're in a very contentious and um, environment where it's fighting. And I, I, we see it in Washington. And I think that has, this is where trickle down actually did work. It's breeded down all the mm -hmm. way in, through politics into family. So given the state of um, behavior, I, I, we can tell from your tone that you're a calm man. Right. So how do you interact with people that are hostile? Um, great question. And I can honestly say it's the first time I've gotten that type of question. Um, and I think that the hostile environment that we're in was uh, further uh, exaggerated by Donald Trump because what he's done is he's come in and used income inequality and despair, and he's used that to fuel division. Mm -hmm. So it's actually taken um, communities and divided them and torn them apart. Um, and I've experienced some hostility uh, on the campaign trail uh, from both sides. Um, and my experience, based on years of whether it's being in business or being an activist, is to diffuse and find common ground and see what we can do to actually move forward. You have to stand up for your rights and, and remain firm, but remaining firm doesn't necessarily mean ratcheting up. Uh, remaining firm means you, you stand by your beliefs and what you believe in. And I've talked a lot about how important it is that we as Democrats believe in something and stand firm by that. But you actually have to, whether it's in business or as an activist or in Washington, my experience getting bipartisan legislation passed, you have to understand what their perspective is. That's listening. Um, not a strong suit of, of Democrats. Fran Leibowitz says for many Democrats, uh, listening is waiting, just waiting for the other person to finish and to say what you want. I think the one way you can deal with hostile people is to listen and figure out where do we find common ground and what can we do? Because right now, that's what we need in this country because the American ideal is actually the coming together, not the coming apart. And if we do that, that's how we're going to actually move this forward and bring people back together. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Um, that's comforting to hear um, because, of course, those are skills that we learn at home. Listening as, uh, as adults to children is part of how you diffuse a situation because really it is, what it is is about people wanting to be heard and understood, right? Okay, so um, you did touch upon something too about um, something that you said is with Democrats say, say what we believe. So when we say what we believe, how do we follow through with the actions of saying what we believe? That is a great point because to me, this isn't about messaging mm -hmm. and this is about actual policy. Um, my entire campaign is about uh, the American worker, uh, about creating that America that works for all of us. And it's not just creating jobs, it's also removing the barriers that have kept people down. So we have to actually have specific and real policies, everything from Medicare for, for all to investments that actually put us at the epicenter of clean energy 
revolution, we have to finally do criminal justice reform, including specific legislation to legalize marijuana, um, to reduce mass incarceration, to get rid of cash-based bail. We have to do real things, not just talk, and has to be followed with policy. So every one of my, the points of, of when I talk, I always follow it and go dive deep. I actually, sometimes I dive a little bit too deep, um, but that's, I think, the difference. And what one thing that, um, why people um, dislike politicians so much, and being someone who's not a politician, um, I'm an activist and a, a small business owner, I think we have to change that and say, I'm going to be um, a servant to the people of this district. I'm going to be a citizen legislator. That's why I'm doing this. I'm not going to be a politician. I'm going to there to actually make a difference and make things happen. Um, and I think that's a big, it's important change. A lot of the people running now, which is great, we have all over the country, have people stepping up. They want to do it because they want to make a difference. Not they just want to be a politician. And that's why I love running against a career politician like John Faso, because he doesn't have a track record of getting things done. That's all I've got right now is a track record of not things I wanted to do, but things that we were able to do, similar and, and by getting people involved together. Okay, thank you. Um, so I'm going to jump into a different topic, um, which is um, the psychographic data that is out and about. Um, we've heard that about with fa Facebook recently, all right? So um, is... I'm, I'm assuming that is something that your campaign wouldn't wish to gain access to in order to determine who you're going to target. Is that true? That's true. And, and, and also, I'd go further. I, I, the whole um, social media scares me in many ways because I actually call it silo media because what it's done is created silos of people of uh, common thought. It actually has not created social interactions and communities. It's in many ways destroyed communities by hardening and solidifying positions rather than having people interact. So I'm uh, afraid of uh, the effect it's having on our discourse. And I've argued that we need to get out and talk to people. One reason why I entered so early in the race is I don't believe, I believe politics is, is boots on the ground and interacting with people in rooms like this and really engaging. And even the if you compare that to John Faso, who's uh, explicitly chosen to not interact with people face to face, even our our entire uh, approach is is come talk to us, uh, friend or foe. Let's have a discussion and figure out how we can find common ground. So, if you're talking with friend or foe, let's talk about foe. And um, how are you reaching um, maybe uh, Republicans and conservatives? We have a very large district. Um, we know that the more liberal progressive and democrats tend to be along the river and then you we have a very large western district so what's the uh strategy or the ideas behind speaking with somebody or the people's out in roxbury or cooperstown or uh, in that area great great question and I'm, I'm glad you phrased it the way that what are the ideas as well as what are the strategies and that's really important um, every idea that i talk about in my plan for the american worker uh, appeals across the district um, and uh, I make sure when I'm out in Delaware County or in Cooperstown, as you had mentioned, uh, I talk about what we're going to do to address income inequality, to address wages, to address Medicare, retirement security. Those issues are common um, among Republicans and Democrats um, uh, alike. And in fact, the four issues we hear from everyone, it's health care, it's jobs and, and wages, it's the environment, and it's public education. Those are areas that, that I have specific experience in that none of the other candidates have. So when I go and talk to people, I have a connection with them about those issues. Strategically and, and or tactically, 
um, how we go out there. I've already been to Otsego 31 times. I was actually there last night. Um, I live in Greene County, one of those northwestern. It has made a big difference already. When I'm out in Arkville, in Delaware County, talking to maple syrup producers, and I tell them that my daughter goes to a school with 18 kids in her grade, they, they said, oh, so then you understand what it's like here. You understand the challenges we have in communities like ours. I said, yeah, I do. I said, I have an insight. I have a feeling. So being from Greene County has already helped me. So tactically, I have spent the time, and I know that's where we need to win votes. And of the candidates we have, I'm the only one who's been there and has that experience and has spent enough time. And that's how we're going to win this election, is by not just talking to ourselves, but reaching out and physically reaching out to those areas. And we've done that. Um, we have the track record and have been out there uh, this entire election. I'm going to jump ahead a year from now when you're our congressperson. I love that. Okay. Well said. <laughs> so tell me how you're going to stay in touch with us. So um, even metaphorically, we've chosen our campaign headquarters. We chose a place uh, in Kingston that has a front porch. Um, and it's not far from John Faso's office where we have Faso Fridays. And it's good because I can walk up there and join the group. And I saw them all again there yesterday. And I've seen Marlene and Joel there quite a bit. Um, but we chose it. Importantly, we chose it for a reason. And it was, it was um, because metaphorically, we wanted people to know that that's how it should be. You should be able to meet with and talk with, engage with, you know, even if I'm not there, there's people there. It's meant to be an open and honest conversation. So I will do physical town halls. I will do um, virtual town halls. I will do phone conversations. I will have outreach, constituent outreach is possibly the most important thing you're supposed to do as a first-term congressman is to make sure that you're representing and understanding what's going on in your district. So that actually is, is something, and I, I also don't, I don't get it. Why become a congressman if you don't actually want to work with people? If you don't want to engage with people, why would you do it? I mean, the whole point of this is I want to go out there and I want to hear from people. I don't, uh, f friend or foe. Somebody says, if they don't like what I'm doing, come tell me because I'll see what I can do to do better. I, I just don't get that. Why are these, con what are they afraid of? That's their job is to listen to people in their communities. And so I look forward to offering a stark contrast on that. I was thinking of something that you said, and I think it was the Spotlight 19 interview with regards to if if uh, Congress was really represented um, appropriately, there would be about one representative to every 880,000 uh, people as mm -hmm. in the EU. Yeah. And I envisioned um, that um, as Citizen Action has captains for their neighborhoods. Oh, well said, yeah. That, that, uh, that uh, Congressman Flynn would have captains. So... Um that is a, uh, we call them ambassadors. Oh, I love that. Uh, but captains would be good too. So each right now, uh, just as a start, every, every county we have ambassadors. Uh, and these are, are not paid staff. These are volunteers. And their job is to um, help us get solicit feedback and get information going both ways in each uh, county. So we already have an ambassadors program run by Frank Pepe in Dutchess County. Uh, and we have one in every county throughout the district. Even on the, for example, on uh, petitioning day, day one, we got signatures from 11 counties because that's important to us. This is not a, a, a race along the river. This is a race for every county and every vote and every person in this district. All right, my last question because I Last one, this has been yeah. so exciting. <laughs> um, so what do you need us to do? Um, two things, and this is important. We need everyone to continue to be engaged and being part of the process to continue to make us better. So challenge us, continue to come to these events, continue to ask questions, challenge us in social media. But more importantly, we need you to continue to help get out the vote and to engage across party lines to get people as part of the process. Help us get them, help us energize the base. Help us get people to vote. All of, and by the way, a lot of that is not just um, 
it's not just Democrats. Get everyone out there and get them engaged in being a part of the solution. Because I think the benefit of that is you all as advocates and who are believers, that starts to become something that's very attractive to people and enticing. Thank you. Thank you. That thank, was, you. thank you. There were only, by the way, only about, I exaggerate, there's only about 30 pieces of paper. <laughs> that was bad. Hello, Marlene. Hi, Brian. How are you? Long time no see. <laughs> you, you know why you always have a lot of questions, yes. right? Yeah. Well, actually, I probably have two questions, Sajid, in all honesty. Okay, the first one is, we live in a mobile home park up on, in Gardner, and recently we've heard rumors that what people at corporations are doing is buying up these mobile home parks and raising the lot rents $200 or so a month, which means Joel and I basically, we wouldn't be able to do that because of my pre-existing health condition and the cost of that. So we, I would like to know, in your capacity, what would you be able to do to help people that are um, not just in mobile home parks, there's a lot of things going on where people along a river in Poughkeepsie are now facing people being bought out, buildings maybe possibly being bought out. And what are you going to do to help people on fixed incomes and low income be able to afford housing and not have to be shoved out of their communities that they've been part, part of for years? Um, that's a great uh, question. And actually, also, I like the way you framed it, because a lot of the issue is we often focus on affordable housing just for families, for young families, and often we neglect uh, housing for senior citizens. And as you said, they're a vital part of the community and shouldn't be forced out. Um, one of the biggest uh, parts of our plan for infrastructure, uh, we talk about transportation infrastructure, we talk about digital infrastructure, including broadband and cell service. Those are vital. But just as important, and, and I actually believe more important, is housing infrastructure. And we haven't invested in that across the district. This is an issue in every one of our counties. And people always say, well, we have a, a shrinking population. How could it possibly be the case? I said, because we don't have good, affordable housing that people, whether it's um, senior citizens or uh, a young workforce, can live in. And we haven't made those investments. So my plan, uh, and specifically you used the mobile home park, if we, have, if we uh, um, provided affordable housing for people, there wouldn't be as much competition. They wouldn't be able to drive up your rents as much as they are because there would be more availability. Right now it's a question of supply. Now we have to also invest in the sewer and water infrastructure that supports that growth. But if we're going to grow this economy, we have to ensure that we provide two things. One, we have to provide housing for the workforce, but we also want to provide housing for senior citizens to remain part of the community because that's a vital part of it. There's a lot of, uh, it's important to have the intergenerational exchange of ideas. And, and so if you force people out, then you're going to create um, uh, unintegrated communities. And so that's why housing is probably one of the most important things we're going to be focused on. Thank you. Well, now here comes another question I ask. I seem to ask this pretty much of everybody also, which is, I've been, re I've been reading a lot about um, people that aren't really in support of the Medicare for All single payer, and I'm not really sure how that would work uh, for me. But my question to you is, if we are going to have single payer or Medicare for All, is it going to be based on a tier plan where people like Joel and myself with many medical woes are suddenly going to become afflicted with really high um, costs and premiums, even though it's Medicare for all, or is everybody going to have the same coverage? So are we going to be made to pay a higher penalty because we have a pre-existing condition? How is this, how, in your mind's eye, how do you see this working for people that don't have high incomes, that are middle to lower class, 
how is that going to work compared to people that have a lot of money to put in every month for health care? Great. Great question. And you do know a lot about this issue. Uh, so I appreciate <laughs> the insights. Um, I've advocated for Medicare for All since 2004 because not only is it morally the right thing to do, it also makes the most sense. It allows us to deliver the most care and the best care and have better health outcomes at a lower cost. So right now, our country, we spend over $3 trillion a year on health care. $3 trillion, two-thirds of which is paid for by taxpayers. A third is paid for by private corporations or individuals. That is more than twice what any other developed nation pays on a per capita basis, more than twice, and in many cases, three to four times. It's a system that's broken, it's a system that's inefficient, and it's a system that is discriminatory. The benefit of Medicare for All is, in fact, your cost should go down. Overall, the cost will go down, but your individual costs could go down because we're going to have more people in the same insurance pool, more healthy people will be brought up into the insurance pool, which will enable us to bring down the costs. And the thing is, through our plan, and we, we have us getting there within two years to Medicare for All, we have a whole uh, health care committee that we've set up of experts from around the region that we put into our own um, campaign health care committee, and we're producing a white paper on just this issue. We think we've identified $800 billion that we can save by moving to Medicare for All. Out of that $3 trillion, that's important, right? It's, it's everyone, we're, we're currently paying that, the $3 trillion, 3.3 actually. What we're saying is we're going to take $800 billion out of that amount over the next two years. And what that enables us to do is to provide better coverage and, and do it for less money. And the simple example is when we process a claim through Medicare, it costs $0.03. Cents. When you process a claim through private insurance, it costs 22 cents. It's unbelievable, and it's the health insurance companies and the um, pharmaceutical companies that are driving. Pharmaceutical companies have three times the average profit of a Fortune 500 company. Three times the average profit of a Fortune. So, and that's the, basically them taking advantage of the system. And we, as you know, Medicare can't even negotiate better rates with them. Bring down the cost of, of um, pharmaceuticals, Increase the coverage to have better health, health outcomes, have fewer unnecessary services based on incentives that are currently provided in the system, and you start to drive into how we're going to drive down cost. Hey, thank you very much, Brian. Right. Thank, thank you. you. You're listening to Spotlight 19. And now onto our one-on-one interview with Saja and Brian Flynn. I have to confess I'm not as together this week because the news is wearing on me. <laughs> uh, it is. It's, it's, um, it's exhausting. <laughs> okay. So welcome back, Brian. This is the tough question segment. And I, when I was listening back, like Lori, to our first episode, you got a few tough questions in the, the first time around, too. Right. So uh, you're, you're very lucky that you're getting two rounds, maybe. Oh, yeah. uh, yes, I get, I get beat up twice. I'm very lucky. Yeah. But um, so something, we've had a long primary season. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really engaged constituents that are, kind of pouring over people's backgrounds at this point Mm -hmm. and that's great but it also sometimes leads to misconceptions misunderstandings Mm -hmm. and uh false information up there so i want to just make sure everyone's clear on (laughs) clear on where the mic should be and on your work (laughs) and on your work history sure so we know 
you have a company called Acumed, which mm -hmm. does great work and produces medical devices. Mm -hmm. But you also are a partner in Schlossberg Flynn. Is mm -hmm. that correct? Is, and yeah, so, when mm -hmm. did that experience start? And can you tell us more about what that company does? Because sure. I think that's leading to a lot of confusion among constituents. Uh, great. So um, one of the decisions I made when I decided to run for office, I didn't change my LinkedIn or my Facebook history. I left everything the way it was because I have nothing to hide. So, and I've never run for public office before. I've never actually thought about it. So I didn't actually construct anything in a, in a cynical political way. It is what it is. I have nothing to hide. So um, as is evident on my LinkedIn profile, um, I started Schlossberg Flynn. Um, I've been an entrepreneur and small business owner for most of my life. Um, even when I had um, jobs in corporations, I always had side things going on. Um, but I started Schlossberg Flynn in 2003. Um, and that is a company that is um, creatively named because I started with a guy named Schlossberg. And I'm Flynn, hence Schlossberg Flynn. Um, we started it to actually look for small to mid-sized businesses to help them grow. Um, I had done that a few times in other businesses. I really enjoyed it and decided to set up a service company, a consulting company that would do just that. Um, we didn't have we didn't have funds or money with no capital. Um, it was basically just a, a services or consulting business. Uh, and we set that up and we had lots of different clients and lots of different areas, one of uh, in, in technology and media and healthcare. And one of the clients um, that I found through that company on a part time basis originally was Acumed, the medical device manufacturing company uh, that you mentioned earlier. That company in 2008 uh, was in trouble financially. So um, I was asked to go help save the company, uh, which I did. Uh, and then uh, we've grown that company since. So some of Schlossberg. Flynn's other clients include Morgan Stanley or Time Warner, these huge corporations. So were you doing any work for on behalf of those corporations to increase profits or do anything that would be detrimental to you speak a lot about the worker here in New York 19. So I just wanted Morgan Stanley, who's the other one? Uh, I mean, I'm not asking you specific, right. yeah. but there are a lot of, when you look at the business's mm -hmm. profile, there are a lot of huge corporations here. Uh, Time Warner sticks out to us specifically because, you know, they're having a merger. They just uh, switched and became, I guess, now it's Spectrum. And you see uh, one of the criticisms of Spectrum that we've felt firsthand here is that when our service provider became Spectrum, they started using contractors and not uh, people who were in their union. And the right. contractors didn't know a lot about what plan you had before, and you had to sit there on the phone. Well, I didn't sit there because that type of work goes to Justin. Yeah, so our work with, so, uh, our, our work with Time Warner actually had to do with the Time Warner Center that they built. And okay. uh, my business partner is a design expert, and he helped design the Time Warner Center and some of the experiences there, and I helped in my capacity as a... Uh, an advisor and consultant, but it was nothing to do with cable or anything like that. Okay, so it's not. It wasn't Time Warner Cable; it was Time Warner. Understood. So before, and so it had nothing to do with Spectrum or cable or unions or anything like that. It was a, it was his services and it was design related. What about, a good question. And what about the banks? So Morgan Stanley, Morgan Stanley, for example, we actually helped them look for ways that they could help small businesses, and they brought us in as consultants because we knew and understood small businesses. So they asked us for help and how they could better service small businesses. Uh, so we did that. 
Okay, thank you. Yeah, and, that's a good, you know, that's a good I'm, question. I'm grilling you. Now, that was, by the way, great questions. <laughs> great questions. Uh, and, I, and, I, and I appreciate that. And, and, and but again, I'm glad you appreciate it. Yeah, because I didn't, <laughs> I I didn't again, why. I didn't I didn't hide anything or change yeah. anything. So. No, and, and that that is actually very appreciated because mm-hmm. that's not always the case uh, for everyone. Right. Um, and then it just makes our job harder as right. engaged constituents. And here our goal is to get everything out there. Mm-hmm. You have to do a lot more digging. So oh, great. Yep. And then we end up spending more time. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, um, so you talk a lot about Acumet as a small business. And this has been a criticism just uh, overall in the general discourse that People talk about themselves as small business owners and all politicians use this talking point of I want to help the small businesses. But Acumet is this huge core. It's a huge it's a pretty big company with, uh, you know, multinational companies. Mm-hmm. So how how do you relate to a small business owner when it's so profitable and you do have uh, well, out of country, you know, facilities? <laughs> Funny part is you said so profitable. So it wasn't when I got there. Um, so I was a small business owner, meaning Schlossberg Flynn. I came in to help Acumed and to save it. Uh, and then uh, when I did that, I moved into from being a consultant to being president of the company and to running it. And when I got there, um, it wasn't profitable. And in fact, it was uh, negative. And that's one of the reasons why I was brought in. And the original founder has become a dear friend um, who I helped uh, save the company with. He's, he was great. And a lot of it had to do with what was happening in the country in 2008. But uh, we did a great job, and we stabilized the company and grew it. So it was um, under $20 million back then when we got involved, which, according to every definition, does count as a small business. It had, at that time, 40 employees. So, um, And our income was, uh, well, negative when I started. Um, so it was. that's why my small business, Schlossberg Flynn, was how I got to Acumed. Um, and w- I didn't shut down Schlossberg Flynn into 2014. So it was, um, that is the origin of my relationship. I didn't start Acumed and, and, um, I was brought in as a small business owner to help run it. Um, so that's, and that's a legitimate thing, w- but you know, when you grow a company from negative profitability and only 20 million and less than $20 million in revenue to over a hundred million, that's called working hard and having a great team of people and being successful. And um, I couldn't be prouder of the people at the company and what they were able to do. And I was lucky enough to be a part of it. Um, but it was a great, but I understand the, the concern, you know, small business owners usually associated with a more of a, of a, um, right. The p- folks who are members um, of the local chambers of commerce mm-hmm. and which we were, you know, by the way, our company was part of the chamber, you know, cause we would be that type of thing, but I understand the, the concern. Um, another, and I know you talked to us about this the last time, and it comes up again and again, and again because Acumed did move some jobs to North Carolina, mm-hmm. and one of the concerns was infrastructure. And I was listening to Hillary Harvey's interview with you on Radio Kingston, and uh, you indicated that there are still some jobs here in New York State, mm-hmm. in Buffalo, for mm-hmm. Acumed. Um, the last press report that I saw from 2014 says that you know there were, would only be 10 jobs left in New York. Is that incorrect? Well, so um, I think in Buffalo, there are only about 10 jobs in Buffalo, but we have uh, employees in other places around uh, the state. Not and, and we also have critical suppliers as well in Utica and Batavia uh, and other operations that are part of our supply chain. So a lot of the kind of pushback recently has been your campaign recently unionized, which mm-hmm. is very exciting. Um, 
I think it speaks to at least a recognition that strong unions are important, but a lot of the activist community kind of uh, took it as a stunt and criticized your campaign for uh, kind of announcing it, which, you know, I have my personal opinions. I don't think it was necessary, but at the same time... Um, you don't think it was necessary to announce it? No, the criticism oh. was <laughs> oh. like ah, wow. 5,000, uh, you know, Facebook comments. Yeah. And we, you talked a little bit about how social media is yep, that's right. It's not always a fruitful pursuit. But um, it, I think people are concerned because what is, has your, we know you're an advocate for labor. That's mm-hmm. your platform. But in your past companies, in Acumed, did you have... Uh, collective bargaining going on between management and the employees that were on the factory floor and what were your experiences there uh, I think that's what really came out of that you know regardless of my opinion about the discussion mm-hmm. yeah, um, sure. that's what was in sure. kind of behind it that you know people who work on cam- campaigns work very very hard and but it's not quite the same as people who are on manufacturing floor and the reason the labor movement came about is because you could literally die in your job or get fired mm-hmm. if you took a day off because you didn't have any face-to-face with the job and you were just a cog in the machine so that's kind of the question the Great. underlying anxiety i think out of that sure um and i'm an advocate for uh, labor because um, i believe you can't have a thriving middle class without labor unions um, and I come from a long line of union organizers. It's it's who my people are. My One of the reasons I'm in Greene County is because my great uncle, who's kind of a hero of mine, was the founder of the Transport Workers Union uh, and one of the, was one of the most an instrumental people in not only uh, founding the labor union, but also uh, opening up the unions to communities of color. Uh, and he actually was one of the first people to give a platform uh, to Martin Luther King in 1961. So labor organizing and labor unions are part of my heritage. And I am a labor union member myself and have been for over a decade. Uh, and in fact, Acumed does have labor uh, union employees that work in our factories, in certain factories. Um, and in fact, we've been able to increase uh, the number of union jobs that we've created, um, partly because uh, we've continued to grow the business and chose to fortify it. So um, I've known, not only been a union member myself, I've created and increased union jobs, and that's where I come from. Uh, and I also believe that um, campaign employees are abused um, by uh, campaigns throughout this country. Oh, they're young people. They, and even I even had a supporter of mine write me. I said, well, you know, they should do it because they're idealistic. And usually, to be honest, the people who write these notes are usually pretty well off. And they think that their children, perhaps, um, might have the ability to go work on a campaign for almost no pay and work 90 hours a week because they've got the backstop of wealthy parents. Well, guess what? A lot of campaign workers, they are idealistic, but they deserve to be treated properly, and they are abused. So one of the reasons why we chose to, uh, when they came to me and asked me about organizing, I said, I, one, I have to be supportive of that because it's part of my platform and part of my heritage and part of what I've done in my career. But also, I think in this industry in particular, the consultants make a ton of money, and we abuse the young people working on our campaigns as these consultants are printing money in campaigns. And if they have unions and they can collectively organize, they can, they can actually make a difference. And we, and the reason why we announced it as the first campaign in New York State, because we want other unions to organize and we want them to start treating the employees better than they treat the consultants. And uh, the other thing in response to your question about Acumed, some of our plants uh, never 
uh, came to us and never asked to organize. And we believe it's because um, we paid them uh, better than prevailing wages and they had better benefits than prevailing wage. So I guess they saw no reason uh, to organize because they actually were paid very well and we treated them well and uh, gave them profit sharing and made them part of the success of the company. So that's why. But other factories of ours, like the one in Pennsylvania I mentioned, is part of a union and they are do have union employees. Great. Thanks. Thanks yep. for being forthcoming about that. I yeah, think it's a that's great question. I understand why people are asking it. It's fine. Um, so you mentioned communities of color in response to mm-hmm. your last question. And uh, it's an issue that sometimes doesn't get spoken about enough here in New York 19 because it is, um, I think the statistic is about 84% white, but there's this other 17% and there are these communities of color here who are... Uh, really suffering the hardest um, under the economic realities that we have here today. And when I listened back last to our last interview, I spoke a little bit about Adrian Broadhead, who uh, was a young man in Kingston who was targeted and tased, and he ha- actually has a court hearing scheduled next week. Mm-hmm. Um, and something that's been happening over the past year, and we saw it with Doug Jones, is that these communities of color are really uh, kind of the backbone of getting out the vote and doing the hard work. And as soon as the person is elected, as a result of this hard work that these communities have put in, uh, they're forgotten about. Doug Jones just voted for a bill that uh, removes protections for communities of color and allows banks have racist policies. So how are you going to make sure that doesn't happen here, especially when you're trying to do this balancing act with these other communities out west in the district that uh, might not want to hear about concerns and may not want to hear about you know police brutality or other issues that are so important to these communities? It's a great question. And our entire campaign is about the American worker. Um, and, and as I said, it's both about creating jobs and removing the barriers that keep people down. It's a critical part is that second part, those barriers that keep people down. And right now, within the next 10 years, you are um, the communities of color will make up a majority of the working class. Um, and you're twice as likely to be part of the working poor right now if you're from a community of color. So when I talk about my campaign and who I'm working for, I am first and foremost working for that majority and trying to both get them good paying wages and jobs and removing barriers. The racism we see in this country, though, is systemic. It goes from everything from education to jobs to uh, criminal justice to, um, you mentioned, financial services to health care. And that's why everything that I talk about in my campaign is about addressing all those barriers that they, they deal with. Even, um, I think it's the third point in my stump speech, is um, one thing is criminal justice reform, including re- removing um, cash-based bail, which is so discriminatory against communities of color, and the legalization of marijuana, which is a way the police use to um, disproportionately incarcerate communities of color more. Um, I'm also for education that doesn't allow for uh, charters, schools, and uh, vouchers to strip money out of communities of color. I'm for Medicare for All, which is about um, equalizing health outcomes and access to health care for communities of color. Um, But it's also about dealing with issues in financial services, which you mentioned. I mean, John Faso was a lobbyist for the payday loan industry, which is one of the the most atrocious examples of how people are uh, taking advantage of communities of color. Um, But it also has to do with 
um, continued redlining and discrimination in housing as well. These are all issues that I put top of my list of things we need to deal with because those are barriers that prevent people from, from moving ahead and prevent the whole country from thriving. Um, this way that we treat and think of and allow the systemic racism across all these different areas is how we have to deal with it as, on a multi-pronged approach. And we lost a lot of communities of color in the last election. They either didn't vote or many of them even voted for Donald Trump. So when you, and so when you look at the issues that force people in the western part of this district who previously voted for Barack Obama to this time vote for Donald Trump, it's the same issues that, that caused us to alienate, um, or a lot of the same issues that caused us to alienate the communities of color. And that's why when I say I'm about the American worker and the, the issues that we need to deal with, they are the communities of color are top of my list. Sure. And you talked a little bit about education policy and mm -hmm. some of your past work in education policy has been in New York City. Mm -hmm. The first being that you and um, Amy right. uh, at your wedding had people donate to mm -hmm. a Catholic school out in Brooklyn. And then you were also involved with the Bronx Academy of Letters, which are both great schools in New York. But uh, one of the effects that happens when you have these schools is that they take away resources potentially from public schools so, or uh, they give they lead to this perpetuation of the idea that s public schools and communities of color are not good enough or that th it leads to these other consequences so I wanted to get a little bit more about your opinion on that. Yeah, so um, I've always been uh, a supporter uh, of public education. And in fact, the um, the charity we set up uh, when we got married was 98% um, uh, of the kids in that school were from communities of color. It was a school in East New York. Um, and we did it as a way of, um, my cousin was the pastor, pre, was the uh, pastor of that parish. Uh, and we did it as a way of supporting uh, and providing uh, an additional uh, good education to those kids in the community. So it wasn't necessarily taking money out of it, it was quite the opposite. It then enabled the public schools in the community to thrive because we were actually taking some of the burden off of them by prov providing this additional alternative. But don't, don't the best, kind of the most gifted kids who win scholarships no, to private no, schools This isn't a private school. get this is, weeded this is, let's out? Be, let's be clear, this isn't a private school. This is a Catholic school, and they're very different. Anybody knows the social justice mission of the Catholic schools is not discriminatory against, it has nothing to do with academic achievement. It has to do with the kids that they can help the most. Many of the kids, and all of the kids were from communities of color, and there was no admission exam that they would only take smart kids. In fact, quite the opposite. They would often take the kids who needed the most help and were in the most need, and that's why we chose to support that. This is not a school on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. This is a school in East New York, which is by far the poorest neighborhood. Um, I think it might be the poorest neighborhood in all of New York City. But also, additionally, you mentioned the Bronx Academy of Letters. That is a specialized public high school, not a charter school, that we founded with the teachers' union and the principals' union that provided for communities of color. Every student that goes there right now, everyone, is actually from a community of color today. Uh, in other years, it's been a, a more of a mix. But today, I happen to know it's still thriving, and it's all from communities of color. It provided an opportunity, just like Bronx Science or Brooklyn Tech, for students who actually wanted to do something that was outside of science. They actually wanted to study, uh, to use writing and letters. My wife was a novelist. Um, so we decided that this school had a, such a great mission 
to provide uh, low-income inner-city kids with an opportunity to pursue a career in writing that they wouldn't have had otherwise. So we couldn't have been um, prouder to be part of a school that provided this great alternative within the public school environment and in collaboration with the teachers' union. So this is not a charter school. This is a specialized public high school. That's an important and critical distinction and why we chose to support it. Sure. And uh, I'm glad you cleared that up. But it also speaks to kind of my next set of questions that there's this anxiety in the district that we're running uh, some folks that aren't haven't had enough years here. And I asked you this question last time, too. And you moved here in 2004, but you also had a residence for various reasons in New York City. Mm -hmm. And some of the work that you actually did was based in New York City. And we spoke a little bit about your education experience in New York City Mm -hmm. and that's something that John Fausel loves to use, the carpetbagger uh, label on people he's already using it. The NRCC is already publishing blogs and mm-hmm. l- labeling people. And uh, I, I know your defense is it, it won't work for me because my family has roots here and history. And it goes it goes back much further than Fausel's. Mm-hmm. Um, but what I'm, I'm worried about is them using some of the work that you did do in New York City and with charities, unfortunately, is like comes all of these, you know, photos of you and your wife attending charity galas, which is mm, there, aren't, uh, there aren't a lot of us, not galas, but <laughs> events yeah. and using them. And the same guy out in Arkville that you spoke to mm. is going to say, oh, he said he's from here and mm. his daughter's in school here. But mm. here I here's John Fazzo, who mm. I you know voted for along with Trump. Uh, telling me that that's not true. He's from New York City. What are we going to do to make sure that that person doesn't then uh, defect from you? Right. Because you sp- you just spent th- invested this time in speaking to them. Right. Ex- exactly. Um, it's interesting because we've um, we've asked this question for years. Whether it's a voting issue, it's not. So it's interesting that that the Republicans have actually defined the narrative for us. Good for them. They're more effective at this stuff than we are. And they basically have said um, that um, the carpetbagging thing is a voting issue. It's not. Um, now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't actually talk about it and address it, uh, because it seems to be on top of mind. But when um, they claim other candidates aren't from here or they're um, not one of us, um, I think that's a little bit, not a little bit, I think that's the xenophobia, nativism, and even misogyny that we saw coming out of the Republicans. And we've now allowed ourselves to spend a lot of time shadowboxing against it. I've got no problem talking about my roots here. I've been embarrassing my children on community theater stages for a dozen years um, here in the Catskills and in Phoenicia and Ulster and Green Counties. Um, my wife's on the board of the Hunter Foundation, which is helping to revitalize Hunter Tannersville. Um, she's on the Green Count- County Council of the Arts. Um, because we've been a part of the arts community I've invited John Faso to come to the museum in the district that's named after my great uncle, right in Greene County. Um, it's 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 just not going to stick. So that guy in Arkville is going to vote for the person that actually listens to him and reflects the needs that he has. And I think it's important to note that you know Kirsten Gillibrand didn't vote here beforehand and didn't live here when she ran, and Sean Patrick Maloney didn't live in the district when when he won it, and that's a Trump district as well. I think um, it's an important issue. We should be out front about it. We should be candid about it, which I've been now for a year. Um, but I also think it's something that um, 
we're allowing the Republicans to drive us to talk about rather than talk about the issues that matter to people. If we spend a lot of time talking about it, we're not going to connect with people and the issues that matter to them. The other easy attack that they like to use is elitist. You know, they like to pin everyone to Nancy Pelosi. And there's this other article that you you were very successful and uh, you're, you know, you're in a different tax bracket than most of the people here. So how will you make sure that you don't get, you know, pinned down with any of these attacks that you're, you know, you mentioned some of the xenophobia, but economically you're, you're very lucky to be much more advantaged than the, the average salary here for a family is uh, around $50,000. Uh, yeah, and... Um, and I, I don't mean to... I, no, no, I don't think it's a fair criticism in this, in this uh, environment that you know, an attack is if someone's successful and then somehow it doesn't apply to the if, Republicans who yeah, are no, also in that top. But, but when a Democrat is successful, it's, a, it's you know, let's, let's go well, after that. I'm glad but, you mentioned that because um, swing voters and Republicans actually like to vote for people who are successful. <laughs> um, and they actually ad admire it and see that as a sign of someone who will be successful as a representative. So I actually think it's a positive thing, not a negative thing. But but it's important to realize, if I had made my money as a fancy lawyer or as a hedge fund guy, maybe have a point or had some, you know, a ton of degrees or something like that. I don't have a ton of degrees. I have a college degree. I have a bachelor in science. And I've been a scrappy small business person. And there have been many years, not that long ago, when I had negative net income. Because when you're trying to start your own business and you put money into things, you actually have bad years. And my son talks about it all the time. He says, Dad, it, you know, people have been criticizing you for um, one. <laughs> and he says it this way. They criticize you for being lucky, Dad. You're not that good. Uh, but he said, Dad, you know, you worked really hard. And you're not the smartest guy in the world, but you work hard and you were able to be successful against really tough odds. Isn't that something people like about America? Isn't that a positive thing, Dad? I said, it is. And he said, and Dad, doesn't everyone realize that it wasn't that long ago that we went through really tough times? And he said, I remember when you had to ask me about my first communion money. And that's not an exaggeration. I said, oh, listen, we're going to need to take the first communion money because I'm having a tough time making payroll. I always put my employees before me. I always made sure that we paid them before myself. Um, and yeah, I've been fortunate enough um, because of the hard work we did together and a lot of luck uh, to finally be successful. Um, but that's not a negative thing. That's a positive thing. Um, and, um, you know, one thing in particular that was online for a little bit was that at, at one point I was in a, a, a rented car at a party Oh, um, I wasn't yeah. even going to go there. Yeah. And the, the funny part about that is... That Justin was pretty excited yeah. about that. Yeah, well, the He's probably going to ask you, you about the, it afterwards. Well, the, per, the funny part about person. it is because part of my business at Schlossberg Flynn was helping people start businesses. I help the guys who start that business, the Classic Car Club. They're my friends. And I help them out and help them get it started, which is a great thing. They have a great business. They, they employ 60-plus people. And I, and I couldn't be prouder of Mike and what he's been able to do, and I helped him out. And people, and the funny part is, like, well, you were, you know, a rich guy in a, in a rented car. I'm like, well, I was helping out a friend who I helped start a business, and that's what I've done. So I think it's a, all these things are good, good questions, and I'm willing to to address them. And I think they're actually positives as we look at the general electorate. Sure. Um, I, <laughs> I have this odds and end questions. I like odds um, and ends. There's this firm called Sibrinth that you started that has been also coming up. Um, I just want the years. I don't think it was 
I think the criticism everyone's like, oh, it's like a date. It's also lumped in as we get all these stories lately about data. Yeah, but I it's think it, it's government. Sec- yeah, it's a cyber yeah, security firm. When I looked into it, it's actually kind of what is giving firewalls to government contractors. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. And that, by the way, I was just an advisor to the founder who was a friend. Uh, similar thing. This is what I. It was, it was my business to help people start businesses, and I helped him start it. He actually left the firm, and I had already left it before they had any of the involvement in what they did. We got it off the ground, and then it was taken over by other people. I had no involvement. I'm not a shareholder. I'm not a board member. I have nothing to do with the company uh, since 2004, I think, or 2003. Um, so it was, in, and that's what I did. I would help somebody. Hey, I'm trying to start this business. I'd help them structure it and how to put it together. And then um, often they would move on like they did. Uh, so I had no involvement with it. But, you know, again, I didn't, I'm not hiding it. I didn't take it down off anything. It's, it's somewhere out there. I didn't try to hide it because there's nothing to hide. As we get in to the primary season, how how do you differentiate yourself from the other candidates? Because we have candidates who are for Medicare for all. We have candidates who are born and raised here. We have candidates who have also created businesses and employed people. So what 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 is it about you that makes your campaign different and why should people vote for you in the primary? Right. Uh, I'm the only candidate um, that's been advocating for Medicare for all since 2004, and the only one has any experience in the sector. And if you uh, look at the importance of health care to people in our community and you compare that to John Fassa, who voted against it, I think that's a great con- con- uh, contrast. Second thing is I'm the only candidate who's created hundreds of blue-collar, good-paying American jobs. 70% of Americans don't have a college degree. Um, those are the people that I've been able to find good-paying jobs for and raise our average workers' pay by 40% because I understand what we need to do as a country to train and retrain people for the jobs that exist today. None of the other candidates have the, that experience. I'm also the only candidate who's been to Washington and gotten legislation passed. If we are going to take on an experienced career politician like John Faso, he better be able to neutralize the only advantage he might have is that he's experienced. I can completely neutralize that advantage he has, and it distinguishes me from the other candidates. Um, and then the last thing is that I actually have, don't, I have a plan that moves us forward, not just against. Uh, so you can't, we're not going to win this if we just fight against things. We have to fight for something. Uh, and that's why I talk about a plan for the American worker. So I don't go up on stage and have a litany of complaints about Donald Trump and uh, John Faso. We have to talk about the underlying causes that allowed people to vote for John Fass and Donald Trump. That's why my plan creates jobs, raises incomes, but also addresses those barriers that have kept people down. And I think, and I think the other thing uh, that distinguishes me, and this is important, is that I can appeal across the aisle. I can energize the base because I am a lifelong progressive Democrat. I'm the only union member. I'm the only one who's created union jobs, but I'm also someone who's been a small business owner and job creator so I can connect with those independent and swing voters. And remember, a lot of it's going to come down to disposition. Who's got the experience that has gotten things done? Who's got the fortitude to take on FASO? And who's got the ability to actually compete? I can't wait to take them on. Sure. And... We're, we're about to have a seven-way primary, mm-hmm. which means 
that the votes can be carved out and you can win by a very small number. Or I've actually asked can... everyone in this room to also run in the primary so we can just win <laughs> with a few hundred votes. Well, everyone. it's it's funny because when you were on last time, you were still the seventh candidate, but then we had two people drop out mm -hmm. and they dropped out fairly early. And now we're back to seven um, again. And uh, there's a real there's a real anxiety among activists here that because there's so many, maybe a candidate who's uh, kind of less favorable for this activist community that, that has been so involved. And you've I know you've seen it firsthand. New York 19 votes has been out there pounding the pavement and you know, just making sure they're out there all the time. I, I do think I've been working a little bit with Swing Left. This is probably one of, if not the most organized uh, swing district in the country. It is definitely in the top three. Mm -hmm. But I still think it's probably the most because we have a hundred, over 100 activist groups right. here. And there's this anxiety that because we have seven candidates, you know, um, one that is less progressive might end up winning because there's too many so how do we how do we make sure what happens if it looks like that that's potentially going to happen uh well we don't let it happen <laughs> people should only vote for and support people who have a track record of being true progressives if there's no track record if all of a sudden you just decided that you want to get involved then you're you're not a true progressive democrat no matter what you say or or what type of rhetoric you spew if you actually don't have that track record of what you've done to to fortify your position how are people going to believe you so that's why i say to people look at people's track record what have they done and then look how what their broader experience is going to appeal to the greatest amount of voters i know that we're going to be able to win this primary and then win the general because we've got that track record and we also have got the experience that's so important for this job and we've got the appeal and the ideas that will enable us to appeal across the aisle that's why I know we're going to win. So I say to people, if you're concerned about it, come out, support a progressive candidate who can win this race. Sure. And if it if you don't, in fact, win, uh, do you commit to, you know, supporting the eventual winner of the primary? And what does that actually look like? Does it look like encouraging your volunteers to work on that campaign? And potentially you have a you have a war chest. <laughs> uh, there won't there won't be much of a war chest left. Um, <laughs> so um, the. Uh, of course, and I would support any one of them. I've said that before. They've become friends. I'd be honored to have any one of them uh, represent uh, us all. So I would support any one of them. I would encourage my volunteers to do it. I would do whatever they asked me to do, to be that I, how I could be helpful. On our next show, Saja's interview with Aaron Collier, another Democratic candidate, a newcomer to the race, for John Fazzo's seat in November. But that's why you're fine. Until then, thanks for listening. And keep the faith. Come up to the house.